Welcome to Behavioral Health Today, a podcast brought to you by the Triad Network. This podcast is designed to share trending topics occurring within the world and our communities and bring them a behavioral and mental health perspective. Welcome to Behavioral Health Today, a Triad production. I'm your host, Dr. Graham Taylor. My guest today is Natalie Lieberman. Natalie is a licensed marriage and family therapist and a licensed clinical social worker. Natalie has been a faculty member at Jerry Grossman Seminar since 2012 and as an adjunct faculty at Pepperdine University Graduate School of Education and Psychology since 2015. In her private practice, Natalie works with an array of clients dealing with substance abuse, trauma, depression, anxiety, relationship issues, and career and life transitions. Today's show is going to be more of a human interest-focused show as we discuss with Natalie her life, her personal growth, and her work in therapy with the inclusion of psychedelics. Natalie, I want to welcome you to the show. Nice to have you here. Thank you for having me back, Graham. Nice to have you back. You know, as you <laughs> listeners, we've had a couple of other shows, and I'd recommend you go back and listen to those. They've always been some of our highest rated shows where people listen, and, and, and I think it's in part because of what we're going to be getting into today. I'm going to start this by saying, Natalie, my, my dad used to say, everyone has a story and everyone has gone through something that's changed them. So never judge a person by the chapter you walk in on. So what we're doing as listeners today, Natalie, is we're walking into this current chapter of your life. So I'd like you to, if you could, help us understand more about your life story itself and how it pertains to you later in your life, pursuing psychedelic therapy as part of your own growth and healing process. What an amazingly wonderful, insightful question, Graham. I could not agree more with the statement that you had made is that we all are, in essence, actors in life, as Shakespeare had said. The challenge mm -hmm. becomes is that most people lose sight of the fact that a lot of people finding themselves having to play a part that they didn't audition for. Mm. And then they get to the Saturdays of their lives and they have a lot of regrets. They have a lot of challenges and there is no do over. And as a, as a trauma focused therapist, I have the honor and the privilege of holding a very sacred space for my clients. Mm -hmm. And I became very acutely aware of how much misunderstanding of what trauma is, what trauma does, and just as importantly, how unconsciously these traumatic experiences are passed down generationally. Yes. And we're not even aware that we have the tools that are available to us at our disposal to be able to understand what it is. Because if you know what you're dealing with, you're now equipped with having the tools to changing your life that is not yeah. dependent upon any extraneous circumstances. How hopeful is that? You know, I think what you're raising here right out of the gate is there is hope that we have access to these tools that can help us through things that we had no choice in having to be a part of. I, I sometimes, sometimes when I'm working with trauma, I'll, I'll use the analogy, I'm walking down the street and I get hit by the car. And that driver goes on with their lives, but I'm left to do the rehab from that. And when you name, it's funny, my, our producer, Peter, and I were talking before the show about transgenerational trauma, trauma being handed down through generations, usually unconsciously. And we're going to talk a little bit about primary conscious, secondary conscious today as we go through the show, because things get passed down unknowingly that we carry 
we're a part of, we're in a roll around, but we're responsible for the the healing in that. Just give us a sense again of, of, of your story. You're not, you weren't born and raised in America. You had a, a history prior to coming here. So give us just a kind of a pithy understanding of that. It's a really nice preview into how all of this actually started in my life journey. As you had mentioned, I was born in the era of communism. I was born in Soviet Union. I was born in the Republic of Ukraine. I immigrated to the United States when I was 18, and I left the communist country. A few years later, because of Perestroika, the world has known what had happened. However, when I was 14, one of the worst nuclear accidents had happened in Chernobyl. And I had experienced trauma that I wasn't aware that was traumatic of having to be a teenager, having to experience adult unsettling worry and this oversaturating sense of doom and how much of that uprooted my own family life and how it impacted my entire family, my uncles, my aunts. And how many people around I have known as a child that unfortunately had very, very life-changing, dramatic, and tragic consequences Mm -hmm. of it. Having to be uprooted and living in Moscow, having undergone a lot of cultural differences and kind of settling in and learning different culture, because Mm -hmm. it will move to Moscow after the accident. And... I find it really fascinating that right now I'm kind of vicariously reliving a different level of trauma. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And it's daunting that the generational trauma of what we're talking about Mm -hmm. is kind of being perpetuated all over again. I distinctly remember, I actually wanted to be an attorney as, as long as I could remember. And through series of events, that didn't happen, thankfully. (laughs) And I went to UCLA. I graduated with a degree in psychology, which I initially was accepted as an economics major because I was intentional in going to law school. And then to make a long story short, I have been fascinated by the concept of what is psyche and what is mental health. And a lot of it had to do with the fact that until I moved to the United States, I have never seen any human being that had suffered with persistent mental illness. And I've never known that people experience any level of psychological challenges. The word Mm -hmm. of depression in the era where I grew up wasn't around. Anxiety was not a concept. Everybody learned to survive without even knowing that they were surviving. Exactly. Exactly. I've had very profound rise towards understanding trauma and working with trauma clients. Very early in my training, I was told that it's a good idea to pick a focus because otherwise it's going to be difficult for you to be impactful with people. Mm -hmm. On some subconscious level, I just knew that I wanted to do trauma. I had become an EMDR certified clinician. I had immersed into understanding what is trauma, not in the sense of having what's called a big T, because I have had my own struggles with being a victim of being molested as a child by a stranger and having kept that secret until I was in my 40s. Mm-hmm. And having to have an understanding that the actual trauma in life is not the event itself per se, but what happens as a result of having to live with the consequences 
of having this event had occurred to you and where in your body it lived. Mm-hmm. It's interesting that you mentioned the example of being hit by a car because that's exactly what had happened with my mother. About 17 years ago, my mother was walking her dog at 8 o'clock in the morning, was hit by a car, and as a result had triple brain surgery, and it's a miracle that she's alive. And having seen the struggles that come as a result of where do you move on as the other person has been able to resume their life, and really diving deep and understanding the generational trauma that had been passed down at least three generations that I'm aware of, and Mm -hmm. being really, really impacted by knowing most people that have been exposed generationally to traumatic experiences had never had an opportunity to update their nervous system in a way of not having to always live in the constant fear of things going wrong. Yeah, that's really good. You know, as you say that, I think that's a a really key piece here. You're, You're bringing in that part of our psyche has that nervous system relation piece to it, doesn't it? And what we know yeah. about therapy, the research-based and the best practices approach, you know, can include developing, you know, effective coping skills and strategies, building corrective emotional relationships, helping folks learn to carry pain more manageably and in such a way that it doesn't interfere with their lives, causing, you know, costly problems in their life, to say it that way. But what about those times, like you're saying, when someone is addressing a more complex, maybe even treatment-resistant, deeper trauma? And in these cases, these standard therapeutic approaches, as effective as they can be, they can't cross over into that realm because it's usually more kind of talk therapy. What we're going to refer to as kind of maybe addressing our secondary conscious. We'll get into that maybe a little bit more later in the show. But as effective as they can be, they don't cross over into the realm where trauma is really held. And as a result, some you know folks could be left with their trauma and the torment and challenge of learning to live with the anguish of their experiences. And that's all nervous system related. Talk about the research you've done and maybe even some conversations you had as you were considering in your own growth, including the psychedelics as part of the process. It's a very fascinating story, which seems to be pretty much a theme of my life. Everything in my life has a fascinating <laughs> mystical aspect to it. And that's why um, we have you on the show today. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> thank you, Graham. I, I am. My role is to honestly, number one, inspire people. Number two, dispel some of the myths and preconceptions. And also giving people an opportunity to understand that they have options. Mm. Psychedelic therapy by no means is a panacea. It does carry some challenges and potential consequences if people are not equipped with information that they're able to truly have mm-hmm. an ability to understand what is the reason why I am stepping into this yes. and what is my goal, what is my ultimate objective into this. I had learned about psychedelic world about seven or eight years ago. And at Mm. first when I have heard it, I had unfortunately a very concrete preconceived notion that it's related to drugs. Mm -hmm. Once again, I've grown up in a country and during the time where there was a pervasive sense of alcoholism. Mm. And growing up with it 
I've never been personally touched by it, but unfortunately I had had experiences in my life when I had seen people that were very close to me, their lives were completely shattered by addiction. Mm -hmm. So the notion to me that you would be able to potentially take on a substance was scarier than any monster that I've ever read as being a child. And it took me probably a good three years for me to start being comfortable to even entertain the idea. Let me just go with the curiosity. Let me find out what other people experiences have been. But what really, really turned the corner corner for me a few years back, I attended a conference and it happens to be that Dr. Bessel Dendel Koch was a presenter there. And he started to talk about his book, The Body Keeps the Score, and he started talking about doing FDA trial one phases of MDMA, and he was showing videos of recorded therapeutic sessions. Mm -hmm. And I will remember, well, first of all, I was sitting in the second row, and I couldn't help but to turn around because I had such a visceral reaction. I can't believe he's talking about drugs on the stage. I literally had to make sure that I wasn't dreaming and I turn around to make sure that he he realized that there was a big audience and that had completely, completely changed my paradigm of understanding Mm. that because I've read the book before I actually, Mm. that's the reason why I wanted to go see them. And I understood that. I'm fortunate to live at the time, and I'm very fortunate to live in a country where we do have an ability to speak about some of the new discoveries that we're making. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, to be honest with you, psychedelics actually are not that new. It's that we had, because of political changes, and this was before the time I was born, with Nixon administration, where we began this war on drugs. And the information that we had discovered, how impactful it had been. Maps, for example, I've learned that they've been around for over 40 years. Mm -hmm. It's remarkable. And for those people that don't know what maps are, I believe it stands for multidisciplinary approaches to psychedelic systems. And learning about it had really, really sparked my interest. I've also have been a big, big fan and a big admirer of Dr. Gabor Mate. He's an immigrant himself. He's been very passionate about teaching about substance abuse. And I have been, as a faculty at Pepperdine, that's actually one of the classes that I was initially brought in specifically to teach substance abuse. So I was fascinated, and I have a lot of passion and understanding of what addiction, what that looks like, and why people are finding themselves in the position where trauma disconnects us from ourselves and these people are desperately trying to mitigate experiencing pain Mm -hmm. and they think in their own way they're actually solving the problem but in reality they're actually creating a monster that they it over overwhelms them and overtakes them so that had caused that interaction with watching Bessel Denville Cox and hearing personal experiences of Gabor Mate when he was talking about the fact that he was working with cancer patients Mm -hmm. and he was doing psychedelic journeys himself. I was absolutely astounded that that all of this information has been right in front of me and I've been fighting it. Mm -hmm. I've been really, my conscious mind was really fighting the notion that this is something that I could 
potentially explore. And I think that, um, once again, on the subconscious level, I've learned that psychedelics actually amplify what's in our mind. And oftentimes, the conscious mind is so strong and it's afraid to go exploring because unknown is scary. We'll be right back after word from our sponsor. Continuing education is both a requirement and a learning opportunity, but finding the right CE provider can be challenging. AATBS, a triad company, offers continuing education for psychologists, social workers, marriage and family therapists, counselors, and behavior analysts. CE courses are available both individually and as part of our new All Access Pass. All Access Pass provides a library of over 250 unique courses. That's more than 800 hours of CEs, with new courses being added every month. As a special offer, Behavioral Health Today listeners can save 15% on CE purchases. Visit us at aatbs.com bht and enter promo code bht15 during checkout. That's aatbs.com bht. Check out our library and check off your CE requirements today. Yes. Now, as you talk about the medications that are available for psychedelics, we know that some of the typical ones that are being researched right now and going through trials include MDMA, psilocybin, ketamine, and also they use cannabis as well to facilitate these journeys for healing and for growth. And the idea here is that when someone goes, and I think you're right, historically, we see people kind of going on on trips, if you will, like bad trips. And so we have that history of people, you know, wigging out. And But we're talking about therapy here. Psychedelic therapy is typically a therapist-directed therapy that the therapist is really actively engaged. And you're talking about how they're credentialing this. Use the MAPS. That's a multidisciplinary association for psychedelic studies. So they're doing some really good credentialing around this. And, I, and I'm appreciating you bringing this into this because it's not just some, hey, let's go you know, smoke some stuff and see what happens. It's not about that at all. It's very, very controlled. And there, the safety around it is good. You're also raising something, Natalie, I think that's really essential. We have two kinds of conscious, two types of conscious, don't we? We have the secondary conscious and the primary conscious. And our secondary conscious is where we live day to day. And it's our survival mechanisms that seek to meticulously detail our reality so we can live within it. We need that part. What you're talking about in terms of our traumas, whether it's generational, handed down, or whether it's you know something that we go to, that's more our primary conscious. And that's the hidden part of our conscious where these traumas live it, it, and it operates underneath and outside of our conscious awareness, but it operates explicitly on our consciousness every single day, whether or not we're recognizing it. And what you're talking about is there's things that are held down there that we can't access simply through the standard talk therapy as good as they are. It doesn't kind of almost kind of cross that blood-brain barrier, if you will, to go down to that place. And what happens with those traumatic memories, like you're saying, they're imprinted. You, we, you talked about the brain right out of the gate, which is so important. Those traumatic memories are imprinted in our sensory and emotional modes. They're frozen and they're stable and they're unaltered by our other life experiences. That, that, that's Vander Kolk's work. And then, you know, Kessling talks about how these traumas lead to the development of what we, he describes as an isolated neural network. It gets stuck in our neural network. And they're real and they get triggered and they drive and they alter aspects of our lives that we may not even be consciously aware of. And that's what I, I appreciate you kind of naming here as being hopeful that these things are at play. We got to get to them to heal. 
But oftentimes standard therapy doesn't allow us to do it. EMDR can cross into kind of that, that barrier, if you will, takes down that primary conscious. Psychedelics can do it. So talk a little bit about how you found yourself going into treatment and where did you find it? A very close and dear friend of mine, as a matter of fact, this is a friend that had been a pillar of hope and strength as my mother was in induced coma for six weeks. So I have a very close personal relationship with this fellow and he had shared with me that going through psychedelic experiences had profoundly impacted his life. And I knew that I could trust him because trust is a very challenging notion for somebody who had been exposed to so much generational trauma and betrayal. Trust is a notion that continues to be very evasive for a lot of people. And I recognize that the reason why I was so resisting to it is because I did not trust myself in the process. I did not know whether I'm able to have a barometer, so to speak, whether I would be able to make the decision based on what's good for me. Right. As you were talking about the differences between the primary and secondary subconscious, Humans are very, very resilient. We have created a lot of shortcuts and something like 95% of our decision-making is made because this is what makes us efficient. But oftentimes we forget that the templates have to be shed and updated mm -hmm. and our conscious mind is preventing us from moving on. I believe it was Rumi, the, the poet Rumi, who said, the snake I love Rumi. that is that is unable to shed its skin yeah. does not deserve to live. And I wonder, speaking from personal experience, how many of the layers of shedding skill I could have possibly done had I embarked on this experience earlier on. Can you go over that Rumi poem? I, I absolutely love Rumi. Can you go over that poem one more time for us? Rumi has said that the snake that is not able to shed its skin does not deserve to live. Yeah. Yeah. It's really good. So you're looking maybe to shed some layers here as you're going into your own work. Walk us through kind of where you went and what the steps are as you get prepped for the psychedelic therapy and the experience of it. Walk us through, would you? I would love to. I have had probably about 10 psychedelic journeys now. Okay. As you are saying, and I had to, I'm a big, big wordsmith. I love because I had to learn English as an adult. English is a third language in which I'm fluent in. Wow. And I find words incredibly impactful. So I've learned that there is a big difference between a trip as opposed to a journey. Very good. A trip, when you go on a trip, your destination is known to you. You have an itinerary and you know where you're heading. A journey, by definition, means that you're going to a, a place where you don't know where you're going. So going into the psychedelic journey, and the important aspect that I've heard a shaman sharing, when you go through hell, it is important not to stop to sightseeing. I have gone through my sheer experiences, real-world hell, and I've never really had an interest in sightseeing, and I have to tell you, I haven't had a journey that was not impactful, and I've never experienced things that felt out of control. 
every journey that I have been on has provided me such an impactful insight for myself to be able to see whom I am, who I am. And it really is providing a very transparative experience where a sense of ego disillusion, which means that you are experiencing not a loss of self, but you're experiencing yourself outside of yourself in a way that is incredibly connecting because what trauma does, trauma disconnects us from ourselves. And the journeys that are supposed to be, this is part of the actual work. This is not how medicine is transforming us. The most impactful part of this is that how medicine is working through you, but the actual insight occurs during the integrative process Yes, because you're able to be connecting with other people through the experiences and everything in your life has a completely different view to it. You and the insights are actually coming in my experience weeks and months and years after the experience. It's almost as if you're able to find a portal and this is a portal that you never even knew existed. And that's a portal that allows you to see the world, not in the very myopic type of a way, which what mm-hmm. trauma does. We know there's some studies that have been done yeah. for one of my favorite people, Dr. Andrew Huberman. I'm a big fan of the neuroscientist, and I've, I've delved in into understanding of the brain and the eyes. It's understanding of giving you an opportunity for your body to experience the world in a safe place. Mm -hmm. And now all of a sudden your view opens up and you're not seeing the world in a myopic view, which is the fight, fight, or sleep response. That's what happens biologically because that's what is essential for survival. It allows you to have a panoramic view. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden you don't have a sense of apprehension. There is rigidity that unfortunately we know that occurs with people that are struggling with depression and anxiety and alcoholism and obsessive conditions that a lot of people kind of get stuck in. This is what it allows you to do. It allows you, for the first time in your life, it allows you to experience a perspective, to look at yourself from the, from the outside that you've never had been able to experience. Yes. I love the idea that when we go through trauma, little do we know, but we are disconnecting from a number of things, including disconnecting from our true self. And part of what we have available to us is the ability to heal. And the healing in this place is is a reconnection process, isn't it? With our true self that maybe we hadn't understood before. And maybe being able to stand outside of ourselves and watching that integrative process take place. When you went in for your sessions, in terms of the, each of the journeys, what medication did you take and how long is a typical journey in each of those sessions? I've been started out with Kana and Kana is it's a heart opening. In essence, it's a plant that what it basically does, it acts in serotonin, two receptors, which are very, very much overwhelmingly present in our cortex. And as we know, serotonin is also one of the major neurotransmitters that people that have depression and anxiety and obsessive compulsive stuff and and alcohol specifically. 
is very much part of our experiences. And what we know is that the last kind of breakthrough in mental health and psychology world had occurred over 40 years ago with SSRIs. And based on looking over and reviewing placebo effects, our success rate is pretty marginal in terms of the efficacy. If you look mm -hmm. at the placebo of the active medication, this is another reminder how incredibly powerful our mind is. If Absolutely. you're going into an experience and you're anticipating and expecting it to help you, it absolutely will. So my first experience was I was given a kana and I was told that this is going, and my biggest concern was up until maybe five years ago, I've never experienced what it's like to be even a little inebriated. This is how much trauma I have had that I was absolutely petrified of losing control. Yes. I've never had more than a glass of wine in my entire life up until two, five years ago. Mm -hmm. And I would drink maybe two glasses a year because I have seen the, the devastating mm -hmm. impact of it. So I was really concerned over being under the influence, so to speak. So when I was given a pill of Kana and I was told it's a heart opener, I had a difficult time wrapping my head around. What in the world is a heart opener? I don't think my heart is closed. I am the most sympathetic person. I have empathy for everybody. Right. I've always felt like one of the things that I pride myself is that my heart has always been very sensitive. And I was astounded that about 30 minutes into it, I had a flood of tears. It's almost as if somebody had opened a socket. And these mm. were not tears that you would think about crying. These were the tears of the most impactful relief that I have mm. ever been able to experience. And I didn't, I remember thinking, how is it possible that human body is capable of storing so much liquid? I was just <laughs> astounded. Where is this reservoir and where has it been? I've been carrying this the whole time. Little did I know it. And how can one store and carry so much? Yes. And I realized in hindsight that this was the shedding that yeah. I've never oh, had okay. been able to experience the okay. emotional shedding. And during my very, very first journey, I've gotten psilocybin. Mm -hmm. But when I, my first journey was very, very now that I understand it was only given an opportunity for me to explore the possibility that there is something that is behind the curtain. And it was up to me to even to just transition in the way that I wouldn't get scared. And during my very first journey, I, I had a big epiphany is that in my life, I have always been proud that I have an incredibly high pain threshold. Mm. It started very, very early in life. As a matter of fact, when I was 13, I was in school and I felt some discomfort. They took me to a hospital and it turns out that I had acute appendicitis. I looked mature. I was afraid to let anybody know. And they took me into a surgery and I've never shared with my parents when they were taking me into surgery. And what they did, they gave me appendectomy with a local anesthetic. Mm. It was a profoundly painful experience, and I always warn it as a badge of honor that I have a very high pain threshold. And during my very first journey, I basically realized that our nervous system is set up in a way that pain serves a function, and it's supposed to catch your attention. It's not something that you persevere, and it's not something to be proud of. It's something that you have to understand the function of it, and I never yeah. have.
But I've learned that from my great parents. I learned it from my parents. And it was so profound and so impactful that I realized that a result of that handling or mishandling pain, I ended up having an autoimmune disorder. And interestingly enough, my autoimmune disorder has to do with thyroid. And thyroid is one of the most vital vital organs that is a shield. It's supposed Mm -hmm. to protect you. And I realized that I worn my shield out. Got it. And at the end, and the journey is about anywhere from six to eight hours. And I started getting the most intense headache that I have ever recall having in my life. And the, the pain was so intense that I honestly felt as if the brain is somehow going to seep out of my ears. And I said, okay, I got it. I have an insight that pain is supposed to be dealt with. You're not supposed to be proud of it. So your role is to deal with it. So this is my lesson. My lesson is to start seeing what am I going to do with it. And I did ask for medication, and it dawned on me probably about 10 minutes into it, is that medication is not the way to deal with pain because that would be numbing it. Mm-hmm. It's on my own journey to recognize how do I process it in a way without to stuff mm-hmm. it down that mm-hmm. I have to work through it. And I remember that I, I teach my clients the tapping, the emotional freedom technique. Mm-hmm. So I tapped my way out of pain and I fell asleep. And while I was sleeping, I had the most profound pain in my wisdom teeth, mm-hmm. only to wake up in the morning and to realize that my wisdom teeth were extracted when I was a teenager. So I realized that that night I grew wisdom. Mm-hmm. And I, really, I literally did. And those kind of insights have been incredibly, prof- this is just my first preview into how much of things have always been part of our experiences, but I personally had never been able to see a side of my own life because it wasn't something that I was aware of. I love the idea that you're talking about this myopic view we have of life. Little do we know we have it. It's almost like the aperture begins to open up in ways that we never anticipated and nor being expectant of the things that we would see or being revealed to us as we go into that body related things, history, pain we've been carrying, and just how much water one person can carry in terms of some of the tears and that that are about a shedding and a release. I know we've got a few minutes left here in our show. I want to I want to talk a bit about how is that these the the awarenesses secondary to the journeys? How has it impacted your life? And how has it maybe change some things in the way you journey through life just on a day-to-day basis? It changed everything about me and my relationship with myself and my relationship with other people. And most importantly, it had impacted me as a therapist in a way Mm -hmm. that I never anticipated possible. Mm -hmm. First of all, I did not realize how much controlling tendency I had had. And the controlling tendency did not show up in a way of necessarily bad for other people. It was really coming from a perspective of care mm-hmm. and perspective of you don't have to have your pain. Let me rescue you. Let me show you how yes. to do it. So you don't have to experience some of the same challenges. Mm-hmm. And it made me realize that everybody has their own journey. Everybody has their own process. You can really provide people with a lot of tools and information, but until they're ready to step in, 
and to start being the architects of their own yeah. lives. It's not mm -hmm. something that you're able to really impact. You can try to create your own experiences with it, hopefully that people will know that it's out there and it is available. And I also, I was asked this question not long ago by one of my former students who interviewed me for her project. She asked me, what do you think is the most impactful thing that you can do as a new developing clinician? And I never thought about that question before, because before the journey world, I would have been able to give you a list of probably, not exaggerating, 70 books that you need to read. <laughs> right. And that question really stopped me in my tracks, and I realized that what makes you being as an impactful therapist and clinician is how far along you're able to take yourself and learn from your experiences. Yes. And that's the impact that you're able to create with others because you can only take others as far as you're willing to go yourself or have gone yourself. Capture that right there, folks. We can only go as far as therapists as we've gone ourselves. That's, that's exactly right. There's something in terms of almost a requirement that we do that, almost like how dare we come into relationship with somebody in a helping role if we haven't done that work ourselves first. I think it's somewhat disrespectful personally and professionally. I think it's but so enhanced the work when we're able to do that work for ourselves first. What a great question. What a great answer you're able to give her. What changes mostly have you seen in your life being the most impactful changes from the journeys that you've been on? And will you continue these journeys? This is my personal commitment to myself and to my own growth to continue the journey world. I thankfully also have to thank my ancestors. If you look at the DSM-5, I actually qualify for a PTSD. I'm a classical example of it. However, I've been fortunate that I have a lot of resiliency and I've been able to right. really work through a lot of challenges in life. What I've learned in this whole process is that people hurt people, but people have a capacity to heal people. You bet. And the community and the integration process, because this is the biggest misconception that you go in, you take medicine, and it changes your life because you have a lot of insights. All of the changes that are going on, I would say, and I, I believe I heard Jake Dublin actually said, that anywhere from 80 to 90% of changes that are happening as a result of journey mm -hmm. is what happens during the integration process. Yes. And integration process is even more important than the journey itself because it allows you to have an experience mm -hmm. of seeing the world through the eyes of other people. Yeah. Because it's very scary to go to a place you've never been. But when you're able to hear other people's stories and you realize, how much more in common of the human race we have and how we have been dealing with so many similar challenges in such a similar way and collectively that actually really provides that impetus for really knowing that it's going to leave you so very much open and flexible to possibility. So rigidity in your life no longer serves the purpose. Yeah. So good. You said at the very beginning of our show, those things that we've done to take care of ourselves unknowingly, whether it's to numb ourselves with substances or even to maintain a certain rigidity, like you're mentioning right now, those were some of our security operations. Those were the best ways that we took care of ourselves, really our secondary conscious functioning at its best to help us survive. But those are the things that get in the way and actually contribute 
to more pathology or, or more difficulty in our lives, the very things that kind of take care of us actually become the stumbling blocks for us from really growing. And I know that one of the ways that the psychedelics really help is to kind of help us understand that piece and not to have those anymore, that integrated process with who we really are being really facilitated with this type of therapy. You know, as we come to a close for today, Natalie, I'd like you to leave our listeners just kind of with a message, kind of a takeaway message regarding psychedelic therapy and any hope that you might want to leave them with as they might even be considering that as part of their own growth and healing. I think one of the kind of a fundamental messages that I would like to share with others that has been incredibly impactful with me is that I recognize that our sense of control is your first cousin to fear. The more you fear, the more you're going to want to have a sense of control in life, whether mm -hmm. your partner comes home and they're in a pissy mood and you want to rescue them and find out how do you fix it, whether it's about the perception other people have of us. This work allows you to have an opportunity to connect with that earlier part of self mm -hmm. that will ultimately create for you an opportunity and a possibility to re-engage and reconnect with yourself. And when you have that chance mm -hmm. of connecting with yourself because you no longer have to survive, that opens up a horizon for truly seeing people for everything that they are and everything that they bring in a completely different way where everything in life is changed. You're almost given an opportunity to hit a reset. Mm -hmm. And it's something that is available to every single one of us. It reminds me of Wizard of Oz and Dorothy's story. It's always been part of our own ability to tap into. Mm -hmm. And I think that when people are possibly entertaining this idea, mm -hmm. they do have a responsibility to be aware that set and setting intention and being in the group of people that are able to facilitate, and if mm -hmm. you do encounter something frightening or scary, that you are able immensely grow from it and shed the layers of your subconscious mind, that you're able to start the healing process. I love that. I love the idea of being able to realign with our intended and created design, who we're intended to really fully be, who I am. You know, as we wind down for today, give us some resources, maybe not the 70 books, but maybe some of the resources that you might encourage folks to take a look at to learn more about psychedelic therapy and also helping us learn more about you and your private practice. I believe that two books that everybody will absolutely learn from is the book by a very famous Michael Pollan. His first book is How to Change Your Mind. For those of people that I haven't encountered who Michael Pollan is, he is a really amazing journalist that started in, in the journalistic world because he was writing about food. Mm -hmm. And then he realized, because of the work that he's done, where he was really having access to really people that changed the world as we know, Steve Jobs of the world and people that revolutionized everything that we do and kind of this is how his interest came to be. So his first book that he's written on the subject, How to Change Your Mind. And there's actually now a Netflix special. It's mm. a four-part series where Michael Pollan actually himself had gone on to these journeys to do various substances. And the second book that he released not that long ago, to my knowledge, it's called This is Your Mind on Plan. I think this was a really cheeky way of getting back to 
all of the earlier misinformation that we were given. So the second book, this is your mind on plan. Also, there is a great one-hour episode on Netflix, and it's called Fantastic Fungi. Mm. Paul Nemitz, is, he shares a lot of his personal experiences, of uh, kind of understanding the world of fungi and how everything is connected in the world and how best of a network it is. Really good. And ironically, just a couple of weeks ago, I found that on Netflix, there is a Turkish produced series that is called Another Self. I was stopped in my track when I saw that this series is actually based on one of my most favorite books. And the name of the book is, It Didn't Start With You, How Inherited Family Trauma Shaped Who You Are and How to Change It. So the Netflix series is in subtitles. It's called Very Another cool. Self. talks about the subconscious mind and the journey and the things, the patterns that you get to replicate unconsciously. These are resources that I think will be very impactful for people to learn, not necessarily in the way that it's preaching, but in the way of let's kind of quench your curiosity. Really good. We're going to put those on our site as well. Natalie, in addition to those resources, I also want to plug the Psychedelic Somatic Institute that can be found on www.psychedelicsomatic.org. We've had them on our show before, Saj Razvi and his group doing some of the MDMA trials, doing some really good work as well. Another resource for us. Lastly, as we close, give us a resource on how folks listening can get in touch with you through your private practice if, if they're interested in doing so. My name is Natalie Lieberman. As you had mentioned, I have been a licensed mental health provider for over 15 years. If people can find me on Instagram, it's Insight with Natalie. Nice. And people will be able to get in touch with me by emailing me, Natalie at InsightWithNatalie.com. Very good. Very good. Well, Natalie, you are very inspiring. As I mentioned before we got on the show live, I just, I've just always appreciated your level of transparency and your willingness to be just so open and candid in our shows together. And I think those, those words are inspiring. I think your journeys, as you continue them, are really wonderful to learn and hear about. So thank you so much for being on the show today and sharing your life and your heart with us. Thank you very much for having me back. Great to have you here. I also want to thank you, our listeners, for joining Natalie and me today, and it's always great to have you drop by. I want to remind you that this episode and its resources and all of our other shows can be found on our webpage at triadhq.com slash BHT. So if you would, check out our webpage, triadhq.com slash BHT, and explore our archive of podcasts and resource materials. Thanks again for being with us on the show, and we look forward to having you back with us next time on Behavior Health Today. We appreciate all the support from our community, and if you like our show, one of the best ways you can support it is by giving us a five-star rating and leaving a review. Behavioral Health Today is a podcast part of the Tribe Network, all rights reserved.